Welcome to Optimizing, the podcast about leading Africa's digital future. I'm Professor Barry Dwolatsky. And I'm Karen Gammy. Season two has the theme, Receiving and Passing the Baton. We're in conversation with people who have shaped or will shape Africa's digital future. Each conversation draws on the metaphor of life as a relay race. Our guests will talk about how they received the baton, who and what influenced them as they started life's journey. We will then discuss their own journey, how they nurtured and grew the baton in their hands. Finally, we will ask them about what it is that they will pass on to the next generation of leaders and experts. Today we're joined by Safiso Skenjana. Hi, Safiso. Good evening, Prof. And my co-host, as always, is Karen Gammy. Hi, Karen. Hey, Barry. Hi, Safiso. It's so nice to chat to you. So, Safiso Skenjana is one of South Africa's top new economists. He is chief economist and thought leadership executive at IQ Business which is the leading independent management consulting firm in South Africa. Prior to joining IQ Business, uh, Safisa founded and managed an economic research and strategy advisory company, and he's previously held roles in asset management, strategy and management consulting. He has an MSc Finance from Esade Business School in Spain, and he's currently pursuing his PhD, focusing on development finance and economics. He is a columnist in Business Day, Pin24, Sunday Times, and he's also a regular commentator on channels like ENCA, Newsroom Africa, Power FM, Kai FM, and SAFM. So if you've read his stuff or heard him before, this is the man. Safisa, as you know, uh, we've structured these podcasts using the metaphor of a relay race. We ask our guests to talk about how they received the baton at the start of their life's race. And that's where I'd like to start today's conversation. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Karen Gammy, who is at the start of her professional career. Towards the end of our discussion today, I'll ask you about the baton or batons that you will pass on to Karen and her generation. So if you can tell us a bit about your own life's journey, what and who motivated you while you were at school or at university thinking about the direction your life might take. And um, if you could also talk a bit about who your heroes and role models were at that very early stage of your of your life and your career. Thanks, Barry. Um, I think I would uh, certainly start uh, at a period where in, in my formative years, I certainly thought I would become a medical doctor. Um, and, and at the time, if, if you had any, uh, call it, uh, you know, academic capability, it was often suggested that you'd either become a lawyer or a doctor um, and maybe an engineer. So it, it seemed that I had a bit of, uh, you know, a push and leanings towards medicine until, uh, you know, when I was in grade 11, we had then the opportunity um, of, of spending time with uh, a seasoned professional in the area in which you wanted to grow professionally. And so I spent three weeks uh, with a medical doctor. And, and one of the best things uh, that happened during that period is that, uh, you know, during, I guess, the shadowing or, or internship, whichever way we would call it, she said, uh, when she's at work, I'll be at work. And that meant that I was on call a couple of times a week uh, into the wee hours of the night and I wouldn't have any sleep like a normal doctor wouldn't. And what it truly did is that it, 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 it gave me the real context of what that 
career entailed and whether or not it was truly something I wanted to explore. Um, it was at that point in time that I realized that absolutely not. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I knew that I had to pivot. So, so again, you know, when you're in, in high school and you, you, you're finding yourself now pivoting at a, at a critical turning point where you're about to get into university and, and now only you actually realize that you actually don't really know what you want. Um, and at that point in time, I was fortunately quite decent with mathematics. And so a career in actuarial science actually became a little bit more interesting for me. And, and I had applied for, for that in a number of institutions um, across the country. And eventually, for some reason, I ended up choosing uh, to, to do a business science uh, which had an emphasis on finance and economics. Um, at that point in time, I absolutely had no idea what it would actually inform uh, from a career point of view, but they said if you're decent or pretty good at maths, it, it would also be one of the spaces that you'd find particularly interesting. And and fast forward uh, towards the end of my matric, I then started applying for scholarships and uh, lo and behold, one of uh, the companies that I eventually earned a scholarship with was what was then BOE Trust, um, which is now under NetBank. And, and of course, the, the space in which they're in is, is you know, uh, asset management and investment management. And so then the, the fit was always then going to be quite natural in terms of having done or going into a degree, which is finance and, and, and economics, going into a firm whose focus is also in that space. And so I had the benefit then of every holiday from first year, actually, of doing VAC work at, at then BOE. And I think that's probably where I started cutting my teeth in understanding the industry um, and, and, and putting theory into life uh, more real time um, as every holiday I was always doing back work. And then I think that's probably one of the first, I'd say, big benefits that I got because I don't think many people have the benefit of, of getting to see the real world from a professional point of view as early as first year um, and with the frequency and the cadence that I did. And by the time I was in third year, I'd, I'd you know, sporadically even go into office and, and watch the traders and understand how they were doing their, their trades, understand the systems that they were using and, you know, you understand stop losses and margin calls, all of these things that would have been theoretical concepts uh, when you're studying them uh, at university. I started understanding them in real, in real life while I was uh, still at university. And so I think what that did, it really, I think, is sort of conditioning my mind around how I would participate um, as a professional um, when, I'd, when I'd finally graduate. And so uh, four years later, I graduated at the University of Cape Town. And, and then I started going into the stockbroking space where I, I started as a stockbroking administrator. And, and I guess the, that's where my earlier role models, um, you know, started showing up. Uh, there was a woman uh, at, at BOE, uh, I think she's still there, Shahida. Uh, I think she used to be Jacobs uh, pr prior to being married. And, and she really, I think, started exposing me to, to a real and detailed, um, you know, stock research and understanding, um, you know, at the highest level what would be expected of, of an analyst. And, and she really pushed me quite a bit. And, and uh, you know, through that, uh, I certainly started understanding also the kind of quality that was expected at that level. And I think that's uh, certainly, I'd say, call it the, 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 the journey into the entry into my professional career. And, and, and from then, Prof, uh, it's really taken <laughs> some really interesting turns for sure. Could we, could we just go back a, a a step and just um, to to understand where did you grow up and where did you go to school in which yeah. part of the country? So I was born in Johannesburg at Barakwanath Hospital. At the time it was the world's biggest hospital actually. Um, 
But uh, after that, I was, we moved back to the Eastern Cape. So I was raised in Butterworth. Um, and then from when I was 13, I, I earned a scholarship to St. Andrew's College in Grahamstown. And, and then I shipped off to boarding school in Grahamstown. And so I spent then the five years that would follow in, in the cold and incredibly hot uh, town of Grahamstown, which is now known as Makana. And following that then, of course, then my journey, uh, uh, you know, continued into, into Cape Town. Where the weather is also pretty uh, unpleasant at the best of times. <laughs> Absolutely. So it seems like uh, I, I I had the knack to follow the worst of the winds. <laughs> uh, I must say I'm I'm pretty comfortable now in Johannesburg with very predictable right? weather, uh, and that is less erratic for sure. So <laughs> we don't live so much on the extremes. So I think uh, in the later years now I've become more of a meddler as a person. Yes. <laughs> so I'm enjoying life in the middle. <laughs> um, so, so just to kind of take it back to, to your academic journey. So I, I was reading somewhere that you're currently pursuing your PhD. Congratulations. That's a really big deal. Um, but yeah, I know you studied at, or you did your master's in finance at Estadio in, in Spain, mm-hmm. uh, which is really cool. But uh, how did you kind of land on, on economics as, as the discipline of choice to, to go for? Sure. Um, one of the things, uh, just just before I, I left for Spain, um, actually, maybe not even just before, so from about 2011, uh, we had been exploring ways in which we could understand and enable uh, financial sector development on the continent. And what we had realized is that um, ahead of, or at least following the financial crisis, um, a lot of the challenges investors, which was in essence capital investors, financial flows into the continent from an investment point of view, they had is that the funds that were on the continent had liquidity constraints. And so Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things then I I had tried to take on as a mammoth (laughs) project from about 2011 for a good three years where we'd uh, been market scouting, um, we'd eventually even uh, found a a partner in in Nigeria was around how the question we're trying to solve was how do you bring liquidity into stock exchanges and African stock exchanges in a way then that can enable the the deepening of those exchanges, because of course we know that as stock exchanges deepen, uh, that tends to be followed by economic growth. And so mm-hmm. development finance was something that followed me from an early age. And I can't explain to you what made me so passionate about development and, and particularly financial system development on the continent. But um, as I said, uh, from an early age, I think as I was 23 already, when I was trying to solve for this um, challenge in the marketplace, and so I'd, I'd started reaching up to some of my mentors and say, how do I break in? How do I solve this thing? And, uh, and one of the things we had looked at is that because there's what, there's what we call exchange-traded funds, mm-hmm. and the mechanism behind exchange-traded funds is that there's a market maker, and so the market maker actually creates liquidity on the back end of that. And so I thought that'd be one of the interesting vehicles to look at, at implementing that into a number of the exchanges in a way in which then that could start to create a little bit of liquidity in those markets mm. because that would necessarily attract more um, pension fund assets as well as other uh, kind of institutional assets. And so uh, I think philosophically I was already ingrained in this idea of development as a, as a, as a study um, as, and, and as a way of operating in the market. And so... By the time uh, you know, I was uh, at Stanley, one of the interesting things that happened there as well is that you know, we had to you know, do some market entry uh, work uh, mm-hmm. from an asset management point of view and so say, how do we break into these markets? How do we establish operations into those markets? And we're looking into the continent outside of South Africa. And so it was around consolidating our static operations, but also looking at, at opportunities and to breaking into other markets. So we had to do deep dive into those markets and understand those markets in detail. Yeah. 
if you coupling that then with my journey going to Spain and and and, and doing my MSc in finance, I I still had a number of of of, of uh, modules in economics there, and 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 econometrics as well, and so I I, I never I guess call it let kind of had to let go of economics in mm. in my academic training. It's always been there. I just didn't practice it as uh, as intently as I, I find myself now. And so what happened sure. um, post that is that I had been interviewing with some of the banks and one of the global banks actually eventually made me an offer in Frankfurt. And what was, what was quite interesting is that as I was uh, mulling over this offer and it was a global strategy um, role, where you'd be based in Frankfurt for forty percent of your working hour, where you're working year, and sixty percent you'd be in the other global operation. I realized that a lot of these organizations, these multinational organizations, primary focus was never Africa, and mm. and that in five years I'd still come back to the same place of feeling like uh, the energy and the passion around development for the continent that I had would still be a miss. Uh, despite whatever rich uh, developed economy experience I would have received. And at that point in time, that's actually when I I really pivoted into uh, full-on development studies. And that's where the Mm -hmm. development economics and development finance, for me, became a meeting of worlds. And that centered, I guess, and started to anchor um, more emphasis in the work that I would do towards development studies as well as then economics as a primary enabler of understanding mm. development. And so upon coming back from, from my master's then, uh, you know, I, I decided that I would uh, certainly look at opportunities of, of establishing my own economic research and advisory work where there'd be some work, of course, that focuses on strategy, you know, but, uh, over and above that would be understandings that how can policy be an enabler for sustainable development. And so one of the major conversations um, that I started having that eventually, of course, found itself even into parliamentary conversations was around blended finance for emerging farmers. And so how do we uh, understand ways in which we can make finance more, uh, more attainable uh, funding development finance more attainable for emerging farmers because the challenge was that in its current format, the funding that is available for small and non-large-scale commercial farmers was too onerous and too expensive, and so it wouldn't enable them to be able to access it and grow. And so one of the things that we were trying to put in place as a blended finance mechanism is that how do you blend uh, DFI money, grant funding, as well as then this commercial-oriented oriented at money into a, a funding pool that is more patient capital and with with less onerous repayment terms that could inform how small scale particularly black farmers would be able to grow and so that's when i'd say i really started getting you know stuck in into policy understanding policy writing policy uh, advisory and 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 from there i'd say the rest is history yeah. So you um, can't see me, but I am like nodding my head emphatically, just like, yes, a thousand times yes. These are all deeply, deeply important and meaningful things. And yeah. Um, and could I just uh, pick up on this, on this notion of development? And I've, I'm uh, very interested in a more sort of uh, macro scale at, at how three things work together in the modern world. And that's technology, society, and economics. So um, uh, the the question is, uh, where does the driving force come from? So people like me who've, who've spent my life in technology uh, sometimes believe that technology is the driving force. So uh, new innovations happen and they drive change, which then impacts um, um, society and the economy. But um, some people, and I think sometimes me as well, kind of sees it the other way around. And we see that, and uh, they see the economy as the driving force. So the economy drives technological innovation. 
and that uh, drives changes in society and development. Um, in terms of the, the main drivers of change within the 21st century and uh, playing those three um, poles together, um, uh, which uh, do you see as the driving force? Is it technology? Is it economics? Or is it um, society or politics that drives everything? Uh, that's such a, a, a layered question, Prof. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think I would approach it a little bit differently in the way in which I, I see the world. Um, and, and it's inspired a lot by Nobel laureate Paul Roma um, in, in what he termed the endogenous growth theory. And simply uh, uh, prior to his seminal work, we had Robert Solo, um, who had looked at what are the long-term determinants of growth. And he had looked at innovation as something that was exogenous to the system or to the development process. It was something that you put in um, and that it wasn't even endogenously determined. And, and, and what was, I think, quite groundbreaking in, in, in how Paul Roma uh, reimagined that was that human capital development informs also the pace at which you generate new ideas. Um, it also informs the the pace at which you can leverage capital stock to drive productivity growth, often what we call total factor productivity. Okay. And so the, uh, the, the human is actually at the center of development. And, and, and I'll give you an example and say in South Africa, we have had economic growth between the periods of 2009 and 2017, but we did not have commensurate growth in employment. We did, not, we did not have a commensurate growth, growth in welfare. In fact, we've had poverty measures getting worse, inequality measures getting worse, uh, you know, crime measures getting worse. And so the idea that an economy can grow while the country is actually getting poor, poorer is something we saw in South Africa because we failed to do the right and the adequate level of investment in human capital. And, and so for me, I think the, one of the biggest enablers for long-term sustainable growth and inclusive growth is the investment into human capital. And now the question is, in how do you invest in human capital? One, the social investment in human capital, right? That goes into around what is the quality of the social infrastructure in which those people live? Is it, you know, that talks to housing, it talks to nutrition, healthcare, um, education, um, but over and above that, then something more specific, which is the skills, right? Um, and saying all the skills that we're developing are relevant for the economy um, in the way in which it is able to compete in a global context, right? Um, and one of the challenges we find in South Africa is that we've got a mismatch between the skills that are coming into the labor force as well as the skills that the economy needs, right? And so the economy is almost disillusioned to the skill supply that it's seeing. And therefore, for me, that's certainly probably the biggest risk to development is your lack of investment in people in, and, and also lack of a targeted investment in people. And I think that uh, for me, Prof, would probably uh, where I would explore the nexus more uh, curiously um, and not so much from a technology as, uh, as a standalone potential driver or economy or politics. So that's a that's a really interesting point that you've you've raised, and I think I'm inclined to agree that of all the alternatives to like neoclassical growth theory, the endogenous growth theory is one of the more kind of like prolific and profound ones. Um, and I know one of the biggest criticisms that comes out of this theory is that you know it's it's almost impossible to validate it with with empirical evidence. Um, and obviously there are ideas are, are around that and, and, and what you should do. But I'm curious to understand, like from your perspective and, and given the work that you're doing and, and going to be doing, sort of what do you think is a good way of almost getting around that or making sense of that? 
Well, I think now we are finding ourselves in a way in which it actually is validating itself, right? And so, you, I mean, some of the more emergent economists, Mariana Mazzucato, um, uh, are asking interesting questions around, for example, is GDP a good measure of welfare? Mm. Or should we be looking at, 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 at different measures that actually truly give you a, the true state of the, of the, of the, of the economy? Um, yeah. And and also what's happened in the way in which we've, we've seen the world evolving is that sustainability, which was often a grudge purchase from organizations in terms of just trying to embed sustainable practices in how they do now, um, you know, started as this conversation of triple bottom line, triple bottom line. Now it's actually embedded in operations because they understand the risk that it has for, for enterprise uh, sustainability. And so a lot of these things that start to understand sustainability at the core. And unfortunately, when you think about what are the things that inform sustainability is that you can't ignore community. You can't 100%. ignore the, the, the development context of the people. Mm. Um, in, uh, you know, and so the empirics are following that, 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 that uh, yeah. you know, grant yeah. piece of work, I think, um, in the way in which the world is, is showing us. So I think if anyone is, is just needs, they just need to open their eyes and all the empirical evidence is in front of us around, and, and, and uh, I'll make an example, and you, you look at um, one of the reasons uh, the U.S. Uh, remained a leading economy for many years until China recently took over. Uh, if you look at, at economies like um, South Korea, um, without much, uh, you know, resource endowment, how they were able to become the size of the economies that they did. If you look at how some of the economies, even like China, how they started turning around, the biggest investment was into ideas, right? And so, if you look at South Africa right now, our spend on GERD, which is the gross expenditure on research and development. We targeted at about 1.5% of GDP and we're currently spending about 0.8% of GDP. In those economies, when they were investing into growth, that number was north of 5%. Um, Israel, 10 years ago, was a, was a drought-stricken country. And if you look at what their spend on R&D over that pent year, it was also in, in, in excess on average of 5% that they were spending on idea generation. And now they are a water-abundant economy. And so it's an understanding that, you know, the, the innovation process has got to also be embedded by skills and investment process into humans. And so if, if those are not sufficient empirics, um, for the validity and, and, and I guess the, the, the value that, that the thinking offers us, um, you know, from this endogenous growth theory perspective in how we understand development and the process of development. And then I don't think uh, we, we, we are paying enough attention. I very much agree with you. I was in a, a bit of a heated discussion with someone who is very much anti-endogenous growth theory. And I was like, no, but you're not doing the right readings. <laughs> um, so I 100% <laughs> agree with you. Um, so just maybe taking a step back and, and rather focusing on sort of like the work that you're currently doing, right? So you are the chief economist and thought leadership yeah. exec at, at IQ Business, right? Um, what exactly does IQ Business do? And then what does your job entail? So I think just to start um, from an IQ business point of view, we are uh, an independent management consulting firm uh, founded in 1998 and we've grown to become the largest independent management consulting firm, South African born of course. Um, the other incumbents are foreign owned. And simply um, what we do is that we problem solve for clients. We, and, and, and we help clients journey into solving for their client needs, right? And so that's, uh, you know, in, in the simplest way. And, and the, you know, the number of questions, of course, on, on the how, right, is that on the one side, we can either, of course, 
give you the skills to help you on, you know, to help you understand how to solve your problem, or we actually framework the solution for you and we'll help you deliver that solution depending on whatever the need is. And so, you know, a bank, for example, can have can come and say, I've got a problem having a single view of my client. How would you guys enable me to un to understand how to integrate my system so that I can see my client better, so that I can service my client better? And that's just one of the examples. But I think at the core of it, right, it's about solutioning in a way that, you know, makes enterprises more sustainable, makes the economy more sustainable, and of course, industries as a whole. So that, I think, as a business, what we're doing. What we've realized is that all of the work that you do in solutioning for clients has got to be grounded by deep knowledge of the content. Right, and so you've got to be a thought leader in for you to truly understand the complexity of problem solving, and therefore this is why research sits at the core, the nucleus of the business. So I look after the research function, and the research function, from that perspective, one looks to say how do we ensure that we we not only know what we're talking about, but we're able to shape the way in which industry thinks about um, the, the changes uh, that happen in the marketplace. Outside of that, then there's a question around how does the organization operate as a social citizen, right? Because we've got to create a conducive external environment for your internal environment to be conducive. And so, there's a lot of work that we do in my research team that start, seeks to respond to, this, to, to the challenges facing the economy, whether from a policy point of view and saying these are the policy frameworks that are, are, are potentially uh, good frameworks to bring value into the economy. These parts of these policy frameworks won't enable us to achieve the dreams that we want of an inclusive and a growing South African economy. So, so as as a social citizen, then we respond um, to the needs of the economy and to be able to understand and help the economy understand how best they could uh, journey forward. Right, and so the many contributions, for example, I would have given around um, understanding how a universal basic income grant can be uh, uh, value-adding for the South African economy, or talking about details of the copyright amendment bill and say, when you've got um, challenges that could uh, result in deprivation of intellectual property rights, how does that result in, how does that impact trade, for example, how does that impact sustainable development? These are all the things that we've got to respond to as people who are subject matter experts in policy. And so, so, so the second leg of the work that we do is, 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 is what we call the growth portfolio, which really seeks to respond to the urgent needs of this economy's growth. The third leg of the, of the work that we do then is certainly around truly trying to mark ourselves as, uh, as a, a, a detailed and in-depth uh, and a quality research house, right? And so we've, we've done a lot of research market research um, for a lot of organizations uh, depending on what their research needs were and and again our approach is that uh, you know we've always got to go three layers below the surface and so if you see any research currently in the marketplace you've got to get get three levels below that level of granularity for you to truly be able to bring insights that matter for our clients. And so that's, I'd say, the portfolio really around of, of the kind of work that we do is really around, one, being an enabler internally for the work that we do in terms of servicing our client needs, and, and the other is responding to the country's challenges, and the other, of course, is helping industry grow through their needs for research, understanding their consumers better, or understanding how to go into new markets, what will be the opportunities in those new markets, etc. And so I'd say that's the, the trifecta of, of, the, of the work that we do um, and the team that I lead at IQ Business. And um, um, in fact, when we first met, uh, we, we, were, we were 
uh, working together on a task team that was looking at skills and and um, skills of uh, skills in the future, IT skills for the future. And uh, you've um, quite recently done some research on the topic of skills. Uh, could you maybe talk a bit about this skills-related research that you've done? Sure. Um, and, and, and there's uh, another task team that I've subsequently become quite busy on, and, and, and that's been looking at how, how do we uh, energize through digital enablement uh, post-economic recovery for the economy. And that Absolutely. was uh, sponsored through the Department of, 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 of Telecommunications and Digital Technologies as one of the ministerial task teams was that one. But the, the one, the, the research piece that you respond to, Prof, or you're addressing is, was one that was quite interesting for us. Um, it's, it's not often that, you know, when you're doing a piece of research, it, it, it teaches you as much as it ends up teaching other people. Mm. But the hypothesis there was that unemployment numbers, though, in the way in which we see them and we understand them, don't tell us anything around how do we need to respond? What kind of interventions do we need to put in place and who do you target, right? It'll give you numbers and aggregates, right, to say, this is the unemployment figure for women. This is the unemployment figures for black people. This is an unemployment figure for young people. And so what we saw, we sat and we had a brainstorming session as the team, and we said, actually, we have an analogy that we believe would be incredibly useful in understanding the skills complexity of our labor profile in South Africa. And we said, we'll use a commuter analogy. And we said there are four types of labor participants. The first is what we call the hitchhiker. And the hitchhiker is simply, I mean, uh, if you just think about yourself, when you'd be hitchhiking, you'd stand on the side of the road, thumbs up, uh, waiting for whatever vehicle that's going to go past to pick you up. Whether it's a truck, a taxi, a bucky, you'll get in mm. just to get to the next destination that you need to get to. And that is very similar to the people that you see, for example, outside of a builder's warehouse, right? They're literally, they are the hitchhikers in the labor market, in essence, is that you see how they, you know, they've got placards, a painter, tree feller, I mean, the plumber, all of that in, in one, they're just waiting for an opportunity, you know, to, to come on board. And and then the, the second group uh, within this community analogy we said is the uh, is, is the train riders. And again, if you just think of the quintessential picture of, of, of metro rail in South Africa, particularly the ones here in Joburg, where people are hanging off on the side of the train as the train is going, it's, it's that level full. But you also have an, an image around, if you slammed the brakes on that train, what would happen? You just have a mass of people falling off. And, and, and that's what you saw, for example, in some of the sectors like construction. Construction is, is in its ninth quarter of negative, uh, consecutive negative growth. And the amount of jobs that it has, it has shared, I think, over the last uh, you know, year and a half to two years is probably north of 500,000 jobs. I mean, I remember one quarter last year alone, they had shared 152,000 jobs. And so that, that's the quintessential image of, of these train riders is, is, is people in very employment-dense sectors, even agriculture is one of them, where if a farm closes, you can imagine the impact it will have on part-time workers as well as full-time agricultural workers. And then we move on and we say, there's the bus riders, right? And, 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 and so just to make a point also is that we track these guys around their occupation as well as their skill set. And so, um, you know, from an education attainment point of view. Um, and so you'd find that up to the train riders, most of those guys would have up to about a metric. And most of the hitchhikers would either have a metric or less than a metric. You get to the bus riders and some of the guys with certificates and you often see these guys working in call centers, for example. I uh, see them working as clerks and, and, and sometimes receptionists, etc. And so there's some um, skills profile building that's happening there. Um, but it's still not at a 
call it the highest echelon of, of, of education attainment in the context of this African economy. Um, and then the, I'd call it in the, 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 the premium would be then the Uber riders, right? And that would make up in essence that 14% of our population that, that has some um, undergraduate qualification as well as uh, uh, ancillary uh, certification on top of that. And, and from there, and what our view then is that once we are able to start to look at labor participants in certain buckets, we can start to channel and, and the interventions to the people who are most vulnerable at a particular point in time. And so we saw in COVID, for example, that the first people whose earnings left are the, are the hitchhikers, right? They, I mean, I remember one of the analogies that came and I think, Prof, you made the analogy. Actually, I think it was Prof Arun Borat from UCT, um, where even when these uh, TERS uh, employment, unemployment, uh, uh, UIF unemployment benefits came out, and they asked and said, you know, uh, between a person who is just on a, an, on, a, on a social grant in South Africa and a domestic worker uh, who's now unable to to operate in the houses and of course they probably wouldn't have had any UIF benefit. Who's poorer? And of course the domestic worker was poorer because they weren't even beneficiaries of grants, right? And so it's an understanding sometimes that it's not just by virtue of the fact that you're unemployed, for example, that a particular market impact will necessarily impact you the worst. Um, the previous labor participants who were not grant recipients probably got the most hit at that point in time. And so this is why then it's so important to be able to locate the various labor participants and then target initiatives and interventions to the ones who become most, most vulnerable to whatever external shock or endogenous shock that, that results in, in them becoming in some form or another, uh, you know, disenfranchised. And so this uh, piece of research, over and above that, start to then bring in the context around, you know, uh, trying to say, let's, let's, let's kill the noise, um, you know, that we often hear, right? And there are these zombie ideas that keep, you know, they get killed and they, they keep coming up. The first one is around, um, the economy must grow, jobs will follow. Yet we had 13 years of jobless growth, right? The other zombie idea is that uh, uh, labor laws in South Africa are too stringent, right? And, and you'd ask the very people who say it and say, well, how do you loosen them? What, what is strict about our labor laws, right? To the extent that they are inhibitors for, for uh, sustainable development. And they say, no, it's hard to hire and fire people until then you start to go to the institutions that study the labor dynamic in South Africa and they'll tell you, I mean, the IMF uh, had interestingly in 2007 started uh, or had been part of the wave of conversation that North Africa needs to loosen its, its, its labor laws. You know. And then by 2015, actually, they made a complete U-turn and said, actually, uh, organized labor in South Africa has played such an important role in mitigating the extent to which inequality would have even gotten worse. Mm -hmm. To the extent that there's about a 20% wage premium for people who are unionized in South Africa. And of the people who work in private sector, only 25% of them are unionized. And when you look at inequality in South Africa, the largest driver of inequality is wage inequality. And so you start to see why it is so important to have organized labor in the way in which it operates. And yes, sometimes it gets, you know, blurs the political lines and all of that stuff. And of course, they can do better in terms of truly serving the labor force. But again, this is a zombie idea that organized labor in South Africa is an impediment for sustainable growth. And so these are all the things that in that report we're also doing, Prof, is that, is that let's, let's kill the zombie idea so that we actually truly understand the real labor issue in South Africa so that we start to focus our, our energy on the right things and stop making noise about things that are actually not the real problems in trying to understand the complexity facing our economy. And so that was the piece of work around, you know, us understanding this labor impact report um, from a South African point of view. And, and we also were able to, 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 to do some modeling on their risk propensity 
given the lockdown stage and say, if you work in this area, what's your risk of losing a job? What's your risk of being exposed with health risk? What's your and so you start to understand that 50% of, of the people who are at most risk are um, hitchhikers. 20% is this group. And, and so again, that means that you can make informed choices around where you target your interventions. And so that's really what we aspire to achieve by the report. And, 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 and we certainly hope that we can continue building on it in the way in which we bring insights around understanding the true complexity of our labor. Yeah, and I think it was really uh, fascinating work and really valuable. And it was uh, one of those examples of um, killing off the zombie ideas, as you say. So putting some science and some data in place and kind of um, um, interpreting what's really there rather than uh, perceptions and misconceptions. So, yeah, it was really interesting work. Agreed. Um, so maybe just to yeah to, to sort of like pivot towards more of like the the digital technology that's going to be playing a role in the next few years. So um, I think there's a statistic going around about like in the next thirty to forty years, um, Africa's population is set to double, right? So between like one one billion to about two billion. Um, and given that, and also just sort of given sort of the frameworks that you've spoken to, um, how do you foresee digital tech playing a positive role in helping African countries kind of cope with this massive population growth? Sure. Um, I think the, there's certainly an opportunity to um, unlock different pockets of growth, right? I mean, the world had never imagined payments, for example, to be as big and as an emergent uh, area of, of industry development until we started seeing mobile payments and, and the way in which they grew in Kenya. The world hadn't imagined microfinance in the way in which they were forced to imagine it until we saw um, you know, the microfinance institution run by uh, Prof. Yunus in, in Bangladesh. And 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 often when there's challenge, I think there's real opportunity that also follows as well. And I think um, given a lot of the infrastructure constraints that sometimes technology can help to bypass, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, that technology advancement is going to bring into the continent, uh, particularly to respond to some of the challenges, as I said, to infrastructure constraints. Like, for example, from a healthcare point of view, remote monitoring of patients. We know that patients have got better clinical outcomes when they were treated at home. But if you can have a device then that, you know, you can monitor their clinical outcomes um, just because they can plug in a device, that means they don't have to go through 10, 15 kilometers just to get to a hospital or a clinic. It's the same thing with if, uh, the opportunities education presents from a remote learning point of view where there's not the right kind of infrastructure or availability of skills. And so I think a lot of even the social investment opportunities for the continent are going to change materially because of what technology has got to offer. And it's certainly then going to bring this conversation that Prof and I have, have, have had before around the difference between digital skills and skills for a digital future, mm. right? And understanding the, the nuances that come between those two. And, and, and again, you know, one of the things is that if yeah, we're going to continue to talk about the continent and its resource endowment. I mean, South Africa has got the largest deposits of platinum in the world, chrome, manganese, and and and, and mining operations now are, are leveraging IoT to minimize mining uh, uh, safety risks, uh, leveraging uh, IoT to look at seismic movements and all of those things to make sure that mines don't collapse, etc. So again, even in the way in which our economies are structured, Technology is becoming an enabler for higher yields, better production, etc. I mean, I'll even make the example of urban farming, right? In South Africa, um, hops, for example, is farmed in George and, and you've got one harvesting season. But when you grow hops in an urban farming context, you can, you've got yields and you can harvest three times a year at the right quality yield. And so I think technology in the way in which it's coming 
certainly presents a lot of opportunity um, for the continent. It doesn't mean that it doesn't, of course, threaten um, some livelihoods in certain ways, um, but I think there's certainly a positive opportunity that, that, that uh, technology and technological developments um, can have on the continent, as long as, of course, we would do the little bit that we can to, to positively engage with those technological advancements and those technological changes. But uh, I certainly see, I think, the continent as being a ripe continent for uh, a new wave of technology enabled growth. Um, as I said, leveraging resource endowment, leveraging uh, social investment and development um, uh, opportunities, looking at agriculture, um, and and other forms, I think, of, of industry development, as I mentioned, mobile payments that we saw uh, East Africa being the champion region for mobile payments developments and, and, and all of that stuff. And so I, I, I certainly do think that uh, it, it, it is a, a continent to watch uh, given the, the pace of the technological advancements as well. Um, we 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 kind of coming to the end of our time, but I just want to quickly touch on something that I guess we've got to touch on, and that's the post-COVID uh, new uh, new reality that we're going mm. to um, get into. And if if there's one thing the pandemic has done, it's exposed the huge digital divide in South Africa and across yeah. Africa. And um, the question of how could we or should we address this uh, digital divide and, and, and other forms of inequality, uh, you, mm. you um, spoke a bit uh, previously about that. And I, I would uh, like to just also tag on this big thought that I've been having about the future of, of jobs, because yeah. a job, in my mind, is attendance at work. And with the gig economy, <laughs> which is gaining um, impetus through COVID-19, uh, will there still be jobs or will people do tasks on platforms? Can you just speak yeah. a bit about this new reality we're facing? Sure. Um, which one to start with? <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I think uh, if we, we start with the latter and we say, what is the, the, the future of jobs? And I think it does actually have a very contextualized view on even our lenses of, of inequality in South Africa. Um, because just to very quickly give you a lens, if you just look at all of the startups that you see in the country, um, look at who's the founder uh, and who they're backed by, and it's mostly young, white individuals in the economy because they've got social capital. Um, and so as the economic marketplace is shifting, I suspect also there are other things that we're not seeing that are going to shift the reality around inequality in South Africa in the context of, of, of have and have not and in the context of wealth creation. Um, and that, that also speaks, so that speaks to the issues around do we have equal opportunity in the economy as we know it right now? And, and so when we think about the gig economy and what it might do, right, and you might have seen landmark cases in the UK and now it's gaining impetus in the US of Uber or behind Uber and the definition of employee in the context of that. And, and in essence, Uber drivers pretty much won the case that they've got an employee-employer relationship with, uh, with Uber and therefore they must benefit from you know the protections and 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 uh, and the other I guess ancillary benefits that an employee would have, as opposed to a contractor, and and so this Uberization can have particularly in an economy like ours, can have an effect that will exacerbate inequality because you remove the ability for people to become protected, the ability for people to get. Uh, benefits um, and and you leave the relationship uh, materially lopsided to the the industry operators and as we've seen even in the South African context that uh, private sector hasn't historically played well I mean you look at the gender 
uh, pay disparity, right? Somewhere between 18 and 30% uh, pay discrepancy across all levels. Yeah. Um, you look at the, the race uh, pay disparity, you know, and so I think the Uberization, when we move into this gig economy, can also have an impact around exacerbating inequality in South Africa. And so I think even in embracing the change, I think because your correct prof is that I think we are going to move to a space where we're doing tasks and not doing jobs. We've got to see that how does this contextualize to our economy? How do we embrace that change with a particular sober view of the developmental imperatives that live on, 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 the, on the back end of that? And so we already heard um, when the president um, did his, I'd call it second state of the nation address a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things they spoke of, um, which was quite positive, was around the, the, the provision of, of, of some form of subsidies, for data subsidies for households to access uh, a data up to some thresholds for free, right? Um, I think that was a, a, a progressive start um, towards democratizing um, access um, from a data point of view. But I think there's certainly more that's got to be done around how do we get young people to participate in retail models of, of, of data provision, right? And say, uh, get them to run these Wi-Fi hotspots in the, in, in the, in the gussies and all of this stuff because they rely only on the backbone of the incumbent uh, telecommunications providers. And so there's no competition really in enabling them to do that. And so I think the idea of the digital divides also got to be around enterprise development beyond just issues of education saying, uh, can you access a laptop where you are? Can you access internet where you are? That's Those are some of the drivers for the digital divide, for sure. But also the way in which enterprises and small and medium-sized businesses are able to gain opportunity sets in the marketplace um, from, I think, a digital-enabled solution has certainly got to be a focus point. One of the biggest risks to our fiscus is a shrinking tax base. Um, uh, to the extent that I'll make this very quick example, Prof. There were about 3.2 million registered companies with SIPSI, I think, in December uh, 2019. And, uh, and, and these were March reported numbers, I think, coming from, from SARS. Of those companies, there were 814,000 that were assessed for tax. There were 200,000 of those who had positive taxable uh, income mm. and there were 380 companies who were attributable for 60% of the revenue basket coming from corporate income tax. Wow. 380 companies earning in excess or had taxable net income in excess of 200 million. So what that means is that when you've got big companies like that and one of them fails, the impact it has on your tax base, on households, and the economy is colossal. And so you've got to build in breath in our tax base. And therefore, our, our focus absolutely has to be around how do we create a conducive environment for small and medium enterprises to grow and grow sustainably. In South Africa, the, the business re-entry, the enterprise re-entry rate, and so it's when an enterprise fails, and how many times do they go back to try to rebuild is 1.1 times. In the U.S., the re-entry rate is 3.6 times. And therefore, it means that the, the, as you fail, you're picking up knowledge and you're picking up new lessons, and, and, and eventually you'll become a sustainable enterprise. And so patient capital, so impact investing is going to be an, a critical enabler, for example, for SME development in South Africa, particularly also then say, how does that contextualize to a digitally in, uh, uh, intensifying economic marketplace? So these are some of the things that we've got to be thinking around when we're actually talking about the, the post-COVID economy and the new reality, and is that our new reality has certainly got to be focused on human capital development, our new reality has got to be focusing on creating conducive spaces for uh, enterprise development to happen sustainably. Yeah, couldn't agree more, absolutely. 
Um, so as uh, I think Prof mentioned earlier, I'm I'm in the data science team at ABSA, and like one of the the big sort of things that are going on at the moment is like everyone should study AI and everyone should study computer science or software engineering or whatever. And basically, if you have a small child, you should enroll them in coding courses sooner rather than later. Um, so I sort of have my own opinions on that. Um, but I guess, you know, very sort of like STEM heavy degrees have been kind of like pushed forward as the degrees to be studying in order to be future fit. And given that you are a professional economist, do you think that like younger people should be studying economics as a kind of job for the future? Very short answer, absolutely. Um, my supervisor, <laughs> my supervisor, Professor Bekbe, said to me, Sviso, in a good market, uh, people need specialists. In a bad market, people need specialists even more. Mm. And, and given the complexity, I think, of, of development as an area of study, whether it's happening at a macro level or at a micro level, we need deep specialists in those areas to be able to truly understand what are the things that are going to be really enablers for growth. And so I think um, uh, our, our, my profession, I think, will remain relevant for many years to come, primarily because of its focus on being an enabler for understanding how to grow or mechanisms of growth, right? Because growth is always going to be a question. Right. And so so I, I certainly think that there's a lot of scope for development in our economy, uh, for economists, but even in a global context. And as I was saying, you know, you've got emergent, uh, emergent thought, high level thought leaders like Mariana Mazzucato, who are, who are forcing us to ask different questions around this, this area and saying, you know, where's the value part in the equation? You know, and how do we bring value at the center of all of the, the planning and all of the, the choices that we're making from a policy design point of view to enterprise uh, enablement and development. And so I think the the profession itself is, I think, is rich with opportunities right now. And it's rich with also opportunities of innovation. I mean, the way in which the scholarly process used to work within the economics realm has changed, right? The You couldn't... Um, you know, you first had to appreciate everyone's ideas and and only challenge thinking along the fringes, right? And now there, there's impetus for you to go right for the jugular and say, actually, this this can't be the way in which we do things anymore because these are the the the, the merits of of my argumentation, and we find ourselves getting closer to what we call true engaged scholarship, and we're seeing a lot more of that in our in our area of study, which is incredibly important. So I think there's there's certainly um, more scope for the, the 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 innovative economists to come in, and 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 for them to also understand what what's the what are the economics of change, and how do those inform how we need to organize society. And so I think there's absolutely scope for growth for anyone who's uh, interested in in exploring economics. Well, you you've certainly convinced me. <laughs> um, it's, um, kind of a bit late in my life to change career. Never too late. Karen's age, I'd be seriously looking. That's fine. I'll take up economics, and you can live vicariously <laughs> through me. Sounds like you're already taking yeah. up economics, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, it's it's clear that a conversation like this, and we've just scratched the surface, I think, and it kind of shows how important all these connections are. And, and it's been an amazing discussion. So thank you so much. And um, just briefly before we let you go, Sophie, so um, could you just maybe talk about, and we'll, we'll come back to, to life as a relay race. And mm. could you just uh, talk for a few minutes about uh, what advice you would give? And you've given, uh, so we, we've heard become an economist, but uh, <laughs> kind of, uh, the the uh, the kind of advice you would give to a young person like uh, Karen beginning um, kind of her life's journey and what sort of advice would you give someone? And I know you've still got a long way to go before you really do hand over the baton, but I think you've got a lot of 
wisdom already accumulated. So what would you advise Karen and her generation? No, thanks, Prof. I think the professional of the future is the person who understands contribution better than extraction. Um, we've had Ooh, an that's a good one, context. yeah. We've had an economic context where you you go to work to extract a salary and to go look at other things about your life. And the the way in which even, you know, the ideas around the gig economy and all of that, what they are requiring more from us is solutioning. They're requiring us to give. They are requiring us to, to be net contributors to the spaces we occupy. And so as you sit and you think as a young person right now and you say, I want to grow and ask yourself this question is that what's how are your ambitions going to shape the way industry works? How are they going to change the way society operates? Because that's the person who's going to be the next um, leading professional because they've invested themselves in giving and not so much extraction. And I think that as a, as a, as a, as a landing philosophy, I think will put a lot of young um, professionals in good stead to, to, to grow sustainably in this ever-changing marketplace. Thank you so much. And I think that's really, really wise advice. And I hope Definitely. people are listening. So thank you, Sophie. So thanks for being part of this. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of watching you and waiting to see how you develop into uh, the uh, one of our superstars in the world <laughs> of economics. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so no. much. This was such a good chat. No, thank you, Karen, and thank you, Barry. This podcast is a Grand Geeks production. It is produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and edited by Evan Wigdorowicz. It is presented by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and Karen Gammy. Music is done by Callum Cool and logo designed by Evan Wigdorowicz. The companion website is at www.softwareengineer.org.za.